Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jim, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm feeling a bit sad. Oh yeah, why is that? Because I got no card on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Which is appropriate because today we're going to talk about no card That was your worst one yet. I just came up with it. I didn't well done. I thought I'd planned something as good as that. <laughs> well, yes, that's right. So we're finishing off our discussion of the aerobic gram-positive bacilli by talking about the branching gram-positive bacilli. So we've talked about the non-branching ones, and that's everything we've mentioned in the previous few podcasts. So to recap that, that's bacillus species, Carinobacterium, Listeria, Lactobacillus, and Erysipelothrix. And we're now going to talk about the two branching genuses, uh, which is Nocardia and Actinomyces. To the general physician or surgeon, these are fairly small prints and conceivably you know, might come up once a decade or even less frequently. But to the microbiologist and infection specialist in general, these are things that you need to know about, not least because you may be asked to identify them in an exam setting. And you also need to know when to look for them. The last big uh, group of gram-positive bacilli would be the mycobacteria, which we haven't mentioned, and we are not going to uh, mention them either. They are so important that we'll talk about them at a later date. So today we're going to take you through what they are, what they do, how they're classified, and how to kill them, our usual uh, structure that we loosely stick to. So what Mm. are they? These are branching gram-positive bacilli. They're called that because they, when you look at them under a microscope on a gram stain, they form branches and the organisms link up together and form these branching patterns. And you might describe that it looks a bit like an underground tube map or something similar. Lots of lines of organisms that, that branch over each other. And that's the main way to differentiate them on microscopy from uh, the non-branching organisms. Yeah, there are two genuses of note. The first one we'll talk about is Nocardia. So Nocardia, there are about 85 species in the genus in total. About 40 of them can infect humans. And there are certain common ones that tend to come up a lot. So the five commonest ones are Nocardia abscessus, Brasiliensis, Syriaca georgica, Farsinica, and Nova. But I have to say... I don't consider that to be information that's worth keeping in your head. They're uh, named after a guy called Edmund Nocard, who was a vet and biologist in the 19th century. And so that's where the name comes from. And these organisms, usually you will find them in the soil and occasionally in the mouth as well. So they're part of your normal oral microbiota. But usually you would find them in the soil and the way that they would get in would be if there was some trauma to the skin. So think of a gardener who cuts themselves and then has soil contamination of the wound or 
into the lung if they're inhaled. So again, think about somebody who's the victim of a trauma, uh, say like a road traffic accident, and they're thrown to the ground and and uh, inhale some soil as, as part of that. So what are the risk factors for getting nocardia? What makes you more likely to get it, Callum? When you see this condition, it's almost universally in patients you have immune compromise of some form or other. You occasionally see in patients that are immune competent, but that's very unusual. No, this is one of those bugs that it doesn't want to infect humans. And once it gets into a human, it's got no idea what it's doing. It has to gain access, but also once it's there, it has to find a receptive environment. So mm. if you've got somebody who's got damaged lung tissue, like COPD or bronchiectus, that might be one thing. And then if you've got some reason that your immune system isn't functioning well, so classic examples would be those that excessively intake alcohol, people living with HIV, or patients that have had solid organ transplant or um, are on immune suppressants for other reasons. And with this, this organism, and also with actinomyces, the, a, a classic one is chronic granulomatous disease, which is usually picked up in children, but that's something that you should think about when you see someone with nocardia. So for the uninitiated, chronic granulomatous disease is a genetic inability for neutrophils to generate reactive oxygen species, which is part of how they kill uh, organisms. And as neutrophils are generally speaking, the first um, white blood cell that uh, encounters a pathogen, having all of them be not very good at uh, at killing that organism leads to this uh, immunodeficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can test for it by doing a test called neutrophil oxidative burst. And that's mm-hmm. all we're going to say about it because it's very rare. Yeah. So, say Nicardia gets in, what, you know, what might uh, happen? Um, so, say it gets into the, uh, into the lung, it can cause a pneumonia. It tends to be a, kind of a slow onset of a pneumonia because the organism is itself quite slow growing. The symptoms may not be immediately apparent, but one that it's at, it's at this point where you uh, realize that this bug does not know what it's doing because it doesn't know to stay within the lung. And uh, what will happen is it will migrate through tissue planes. So instead of staying within like a lobe, like a standard uh, pneumonia bug would, it will migrate to the pleura and will cause a pleuritis. It will separate wherever it is, and that will cause a, a lung abscess. And at that point, it's because it's it's migrating through or eating through tissue planes, it's going to get access to the bloodstream. And then at that point, it will be able to migrate to the heart and cause an endocarditis, although I've never seen that. But about a third of con- conditions where there is a lung abscess, a third of them will migrate to the brain, and then it will cause a brain abscess. Uh, and that's the if, if this thing has a classic presentation, that would be it. Brain abscess, secondary to lung abscess. Mm. And then, of course, with, with skin contamination or soil contamination uh, of the skin, it can cause cellulitides. Uh, again, milder in nature than your, your standard uh, cellulitis presentation. Uh, but again, can, can then migrate to the bloodstream and then onward. It's propensity to cause uh, abscesses and, and separate, as James says, to, to sort of form pus is seen throughout the body as well. So you can, those are the classic ones. You can find it in uh, lots of other locations. So I'm thinking of a case that we had where as a patient had a, a large thigh 
abscess it turned out to be nocardia it was very unusual i don't think they were being compromised and everyone thought it was either tb or cancer and mm. it turned out to be this so it's something to have in your your lowdown but in your list of differentials if there's something unusual going on and there's abscesses and when you get the pathology results there's always granulomas yeah i mean i think usually this is diagnosed once you get the gram stain back and then yep. you realize that it's not tb yeah um for example so let, let's talk about that now so what do you find in the lab so as, as we said a branching gram positive bacillus it's got delicate thin filaments and you can do a zeal nielsen stain and nocardia will be acid variable so we talked about mycobacteria the classic example being tuberculosis mycobacterium and that is classically acid fast alcohol fast and so that's one of the things you'll be differentiating it from and uh, nocardia is, is acid variable so um not it might be a bit acid fast so it's not easiest to tell them apart um there's, there's certainly some overlap there but uh when you culture the nocardia it takes about 14 days um so quite slow growing although compared to most mycobacteria a bit quicker than than those and it grows on a, a nutrient um agar yeah there's a specialized nutrient agar that we use is that right so you can use a specialized uh, agar, which is enriched with yeast extract and activated charcoal called BCYE, uh, which is the same that we use for Legionella. I can't remember if we mentioned that in the when we talked about Legionella before. And it will also grow on uh, Saburo agar, which is something they use looking for fungi. Um, it, it grows quite well on a variety of, of agar. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, you don't need a, a special uh, agar for it. Uh, although with most of these things, you're going to be testing it for it on respiratory samples and there's going to be other organisms there. So the problem isn't, the problem is that it's so slow growing, you know, you're, you're trying to eliminate other organisms. So yeah, it gets drowned out. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that's why trying to grow it in Sabaro is, uh, is, is useful. So Sabaro agar for those who are not aware is, uh, specific agar that is used mainly to cultivate uh fungi um but nocardia does grow well on it and the classic saburo agar uh has a low ph is acidic and that inhibits bacterial growth mostly um you can then add further antibiotics into it like chloramphenicol is another one to make it more selective mm-hmm. how do you kill nocardia then Cal? Yes. Um, so the, cl- the the usual treatment for nocardia is cotrimoxazole, and you need a very long course of treatment because it's mm-hmm. so slow growing and in a similar way to tuberculosis, uh, you end up treating for about six to 12 months. Um, if the patient's immune suppressed, um, it needs to be longer. Also thinking about your pharmacokinetics, if there's a brain abscess, it's harder to get adequate drug doses there and you don't have as active an immune system in your brain, so you don't have that sort of backup of your immune system. So, um, you know, you end up needing a bit longer if you're, you've got a brain abscess. Yeah, and we've run into trouble with this, uh, haven't we, Callum? Because we, um, we had a patient that couldn't take Cotrim. Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember that one. Maybe you weren't on the ward at the time. So there was, it, was a, uh, it was an HIV patient who also had uh, problems with alcohol and I can't remember what else they had, but they, they got an acardia brain abscess and he was started on cotrimoxazole 
and we had terrible trouble with um, immuno, uh, sorry, with um, bone marrow suppression. So he got anemia, he got neutropenic. At one point, he was on Cotrim and Piptaz for the neutropenia, you know, almost as a preventative measure. And we had big debates about what to what to switch him on to next. You know, not not least because most of the rest of the stuff that you can use to treat nocardia are they're all IV. Things like amikacin uh, can be used. It's one of the aminoglycosides. Uh, meropenem, uh, because nocardia is intrinsically resistant to penicillins and I think also cephalosporins. Linezolid is an option, but linezolid also has its issues with psychiatric side effects and it can cause bone marrow suppression too. I can't even remember what we did in the end. I think we actually got them on a reduced dose of Cotrim. So instead of a PCP weight-based dosing, we, we dropped them down to 960 milligrams BD and transfused them. And things seemed to hold. So we stopped at that. And uh, eventually, I think we got them out. But, you know, that's, that's an example. They, these kind of weird and wonderful bugs, they're not even weird and wonderful. It's just that they're kind of small print, let's call them there's not a huge amount of evidence behind what you can use. And so if you can't use the number one recommended treatment, say you very quickly start to run out of other stuff that you can give, yes. you know, people were having discussions about whether or not we could use ertapenem and then we could opatum giving him a once a day formulation because meropenem you have to give multiple times a day. I'm a case and we could opat, but then we'd have to watch out for his kidneys and his hearing. It gets tricky very quickly. Right. The good thing in HIV, often when people are this immune suppressed, is that if you can control their HIV infection and get them established and get their compliance good on antiretrovirals, if you, you can then um, allow their uh, CD4 cells, part of their immune system that's not working, to work again, then uh, you can, you know, that will make a huge difference in yeah. um, the treatment. I suppose that's one of the cases where, you know, you could. You know, we, we said a duration of six to 12 months. If you're immunosuppressed and you've got ongoing risk, you may never take them off. You may you may end up kind of prophylaxing them. Yeah, say you've got um, a, with a solid organ transplant, you, you just can't, you know, there's a, yeah. maybe you can less the immune suppression to a degree, but you can never remove it. No, um, no, but with HIV, you can reverse the immunosuppression. You can just persuade them to take their meds. And, you know, that way you can get them back to usually a respectable CD4 level to the point where if they continue taking their medicine, they'll live a long and healthy life. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, nocardia in summary, because um, I think that's all we've got to say about it. It's a rare condition, but important being aware of, and it's got certain associations where you, you should think, you know, if someone's got nocardia uh, invasively, then you, you're really searching for a reason for them to have that. You're looking for them uh, to have some, you know, degree of immune suppression or compromise. And until you find that, you're not going to be, I don't think, confident that you're doing the right thing. So, actinomyces mm. is another branching gram-positive bacillus. And there's several main species. So the classic Israelii. Uh, species that's the one that is historically been the most commonly isolated and the most commonly associated with the condition that actinomyces cause which is actinomycosis um, some other common species and 
not really any need to memorize this, but Garin Cersier. Getting Cersei. Yep, that's what I said. <laughs> I'll pretend. Uh, name for a bacteriologist, Mary and. Getting Ser. Yep, that was me there. Uh, Mayari, uh, which is associated particularly of uh, central nervous system abscess. Uh, viscosis, which is associated with the dental uh, caries, sort of dental area. Uh, Nasalundi and odontolyticus. There's a lot more. And yeah. uh, I think this is a really interesting area of developing microbiology with the advent of molecular techniques, um, which we'll come on to when we talk about the lab ID. Where do we find actinomyces, Jane? Um, they are natural residents of the, uh, the GI tract and the mouth and the vagina. So anywhere where it's wet and anaerobic, there you would find actinomyces. And what are the risk factors for developing actinomycosis, which is the clinical disease caused by actinomyces? Mm. Well, the, um, the risk factors kind of vary from, from where you are. So in, in tropical climates, actinomycosis is in general more common. And I'm not really entirely sure why that is. Obviously, Scotland is not a tropical climate, but we've had a few cases, haven't we, Callum, in uh, Scotland. Uh, and here you should think about, like, how are they going to translocate from where they are to the, to the site? So malnutrition is associated with gut translocation of bacteria, poor oral hygiene uh, and oral trauma might result in, you know, actino actinomyces uh, cells uh, translocating into the blood. The cases that I've seen, uh, the first case that I ever saw of actinomyces was an IVDU who was licking his needles and injecting into his groin. And he had uh, actinomyces abscess and actinomycosis uh, growing in his, uh, growing just above his uh, femoral vein. So IVDUs are uh, intravenous drug user, although... Uh, we tend to call these people who inject drugs now just to make sure that you include people that pop and inject under the skin rather than into mm. the vein. Yes, it, it's not common, but it's not unusual to see. I think um, it depends which specialty. I mean, it can be common, Callum, can it? It's not common, but I think depending which specialty you're in. So uh, James gave that example there of someone who injects drugs and it could be injected in through uh, coming a different route. But the, the typical infections you see um, are oral pharyngeal, so related to dental infections. So it's sitting in that site anyway, and so it can cause dental abscesses and uh, cause actinomycosis of the of the jaw. So you get this uh, very uh, pathognomic-looking uh, abscess, which is very slow-growing. It's got tracks and uh, discharges pellets, which are almost like very small bits of orzopasta, is how I would describe them uh, as they come out. Another classic infection would be pelvic. So intrauterine call devices can become colonized on their insertion. And uh, this generally isn't a problem if you have your coil checked regularly and there's no issues with it, it's replaced at the cycle. But if it is left in for too long, and so I'm thinking of a case that was involved with where it was in for 40 years, then you know, problems can arise. This is quite a slow-growing organism, so it's not an acute problem. But you do see actinomycosis of the 
of the, of the uterus and expanding it into the abdomen as a result of this. You can also get it thoracically. I'd say that's much less common than the other two. Yes. And you can think, you know, it's slow growing abscesses with tracks. Hmm, that sounds a bit like fungal infection. And the name as well, actinomycosis. So you think of the mycology lab or, you know, the word mice means fungus. Uh, and basically when these were first found and looked at under the microscope, there was a, an assumption made that they were some sort of uh, fungus. And um, the word actino means ray-like. Um, so that's the branching part of this. And, you know, you can see where they were coming from. Early microbiology uh, made lots and lots of brilliant discoveries, and you're obviously going to make some mistakes. But now we are very lucky to have really cool machines that very clever people have come up with um, that you can pop them in and they tell you exactly what they are. So, yes, <laughs> I don't think we have much of a scratch on those early microbiologists, but uh, we are fortunate to live in a day and age where if you have access to them, you can just very easily say, oh, that's the name of the organism. So the Molditoff, keep alluding to, I feel like it's going to build up to this uh, episode where we talk about it in depth one time. So yeah, so as I was alluding to earlier on, I think this is a developing area of microbiology. And the reason is that these are really difficult organisms to grow and also have historically been quite difficult organisms to identify. Whereas now, once you've grown on a plate and you put it at the Molditoff, it quite easily tells you the species of Actinomyces it is. And so... When someone has a clinical condition that looks like actinomycosis and you send a sample and you specifically look for this organism and then you identify it, that makes sense. And that is usually going to be actinomyces israelii. That's the classic um, mm -hmm. cause. Yeah, although not the first one that I ever encountered. So my first one was odontolysicus. Okay, yeah. And that was actually a bit of a problem because I... I couldn't find any literature on it. It was all Actinomyces israelii uh, infection. And so some of the more small print ones, you'll find that there's very little uh, on it, but they can differ quite a lot in their mm. antimicrobial sensitivity. So that can be a problem because you have to wait for them to grow before you can definitely uh, before you can do your... Even in their growing conditions. Yeah. Um, you've got your actinomycosis, you grow the organism. But what we're seeing now more and more is that you have patients that do not have classical actinomycosis. So a good example would be someone who's had intra-abdominal problems. So potentially they've had a ruptured appendicitis or they've had a colorectal abscess or something similar. And you get a sample to the lab of pus or tissue or something and you culture this and then there's an anaerobe that starts growing mm -hmm. and then you identify it and it's quite slow growing. Put it in a Molotov. Oh, actinomyces something something hmm. Hmm. and i think there's two schools of thoughts in this one is well we've grown actinomyces so they have actinomycosis so we should treat them for six months i think that it's a normal part of the gi tract we're finding it more and more so the key thing really is what's a clinical syndrome because if they've had an abscess they've had an operation they've had it washed out you know and you've got some antibiotics i don't think that's i don't think that's the same beast and there's more and more literature coming about that so that's a bit of a, a deep delve into my thoughts on that i think going back to the basics of it so culture is not as slow growing as nocardia um so you grow it in about three to seven days mostly mm. um can take a bit longer generally speaking it's anaerobic so some of the actinomyces are 
um, obligate, so they must grow anaerobically. Um, some of them are facultatively anaerobic, so they can grow uh, in air, and that sort of explains why some of them reside in the mouth, which is generally speaking quite an aerobic environment. And so that sort of differentiates which species are in different parts of the body. And the plate, um, so you put them up on a specific culture plate, fastidious anaerobic agar, uh, which most anaerobes will grow on, or you want to be more selective, you can add metronidazole to that um, and other antibiotics, naldixic acid or mupirocin, as actinomyces are resistant to metronidazole, which differentiates them from most other anaerobes. Mm. That's not a universal truth. Uh, so I think there's some actinomyces that are sensitive, but in generally they're resistant. Um, and when you do grow them, um, and you, so you grow them in quite specific conditions using a specific agar, we do a lot of this for ENT and plastics um, patients who have dental abscesses or, or typical appearance, uh, and they grow on a plate, they, you might have the sulfur granule, which you get from the, from the patient, but uh, on the plate, they have a molar tooth appearance. So they're, they're white, they're kind of hard and bumpy, and they, they eat into the agar. They're quite like fascinating to see in the lab. There's certain colonies that once you've seen them once, you don't forget how it looks and you'll recognize yeah, it again. Yeah. And this is one of them. True. So yeah, that's the, the microbiology. Probably more than you wanted to know about it. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm a bit of a niche group anyway. Well, you remember when we started, we were like, I wonder if this is going to be for like infection trainees or is it going to be for everybody? Is it going to be for the F1 on the boards? It's for infection trainees. Nobody else has uh, kept with us for this long. Well, I think uh, people that work around or with um, bacteria infection are just super geeky people. And James' okay. mum. And my mum. So in terms of what you do with actinomyces once you find it and you've determined that it is pathogenic the kind of hallmark of treatment is to debride as much tissue as you can and if the infection revolves around a, in an IUCD that would require removal uh, of that device and then treatment is usually uh, with penicillin antibiotics either amoxicillin or penicillin and that has to be for a long period of time six months 12 months depending on what literature you're reading different lengths of time are recommended kind of I think reflecting different amounts of familiarity with that particular species so for my uh, guy he got six months of amoxicillin high dose amoxicillin and at six months his abscess was was fine there was no recurrence and he felt okay so we stopped at that point if he'd felt a bit ropey or if we'd had some recurrence at the site we probably would have extended uh, for another six months. So there's a low threshold, let's say, for giving a prolonged course of treatment. So these branching grandpas of bacilli, their treatment lengths are, are very similar to TB, aren't they? You know, yeah. you're talking half a year, whereas with most other bacteria, you don't really do that. Yeah, there, I think, you know, we often think in our head, or maybe I think in my head, that you've got bacteria and you've got fungi and you've got mycobacteria, but there's definitely a spectrum of bacteria. So these are on the route towards mycobacteria. Um, yeah. You know, we, we categorize things because we kind of have to, to function, but they, they, they share some similarities with, with fungi and, and mycobacteria, but they are, for reasons that I don't fully understand, 
but to do with molecular and um, stuff that the, the clever taxonomists come up with are in bacteria. So how can we tell the difference between nocardia and actinomyces in the lab? So this, this bit at the end is just for people that are going to be sitting there part one and their part two soon if they want a quick reference guide. So actino are anaerobic. So A-N-O, actino. Nice. And in terms of acid fasts, the clues in the name, the last bit is no. So they are not acid fast. No cardia uh, has an O in it. And go with me, because I know that actino has an O in it as well. But the O comes sooner in no cardia, implying that it likes oxygen. So it grows in aerobic conditions. And it is... Uh, acid variable so some are acid fast and some aren't it depends on the species and then at the at the other end just i haven't put this in the table here but if you think about tb tb are aerobic as well and they are acid fast but that's a really helpful way of remembering it. i like actino glad i could be of assistance good questions comments suggestions why don't you send them in to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com until next time i'm jane I'm Callum. See you then. Bye.